You are listening to Pandora's Box Radio with Kalia LaRoche. For more information about my products and services, counseling, coaching, hypnotherapy, books, and audios, please visit NarcissismFree.com or PathBackToSelf.com. Hello, and welcome to Pandora's Box. This is Kalia. Today, I'm going to talk about something a little different. I'm going to talk about something I normally don't go into detail about. It's an important part of my story, my journey that brought me to where I am now. And I'm titling this podcast, My Slow Suicide and Why I Chose to Live. Now, the deeper purpose for my sharing this story is to explore the ideas of life, purpose, mission, and destiny, leading to the question, do we have a purpose for being here? Because of my experiences in life, I've come to believe that nothing really happens by accident. We have soul contracts which come with a mission and a purpose for being here. Sometimes our most difficult challenges in life create the circumstances for our soul's greatest growth and expansion. We can curse the powers that be for putting us in these circumstances, or we can look for the lessons and the purpose that allow us to rise above our circumstances and create a life more in alignment with our soul's purpose. When I was just 17 years old, I was on a path of slow suicide. My internal life had become so painful that I didn't want to live anymore. Now, this wasn't a conscious choice. I didn't sit around planning my death. It was a subconscious plan. I went on a hunger strike. I quit eating. There was a psychological name for what was happening to me. It was called anorexia nervosa, translated to nervous loss of appetite. Psychology has all kinds of reasons a young woman becomes anorexic. It is thought that anorexia is the result of feeling out of control in one's life. Food or the lack of becomes the one thing an anorexic can control. She can decide whether or not to eat, and she can hide her decision from others until her bones begin to protrude through her skin and she begins to look like a concentration camp victim. That was me at the age of 17. Since anorexia includes body dysmorphia, which is basically the inability to see your body the way that others do, I couldn't see my true reflection in the mirror. I had a belief that I was fat, ugly, unwanted, and uncared for. My life had shown me this. This is how I interpreted the treatment I received from others. It didn't matter that the numbers on the scale told me I weighed 89 pounds. There was still an unlovable fat person looking back at me in the mirror. I lived in a family environment that was emotionally disconnected. I didn't feel I could talk to anyone about what I was feeling or going through. I felt isolated and lonely. Music had become my only outlet. 
I had taught myself to play the piano and I loved to sing. I wrote songs and channeled my pain into my songs, but my music wasn't enough to save me. You might wonder how I managed to starve myself down to 89 pounds without anyone noticing. I was wasting away right under my family's non-observant eyes, and no concern was expressed. It was a slow death, wasting away to skin and bones. At school, people might have stared at me or gawked at me. They may have even whispered as I passed by in my baggy clothes and my withdrawn, sad face. I was the invisible child, the one who flew under the radar. I was not noticed or noticeable. I was invisible. Being invisible felt like being a ghost where I could see everyone around me, but they couldn't see me. I would try to speak out and share my silent pain, and yet there was no voice. I couldn't be heard. I lived on a dairy farm in the country. There were no houses inside of my home, just fields and forest. I had a job on the farm, which I would begin at five in the morning before getting ready for school. I would go out and pitch hay to the cows and do cleanup work. And the more my disease progressed, the more difficult it became to do my chores. As I was getting closer to my death experience, I began to black out. I would lose consciousness for short periods of time. I was afraid, but I couldn't ask for help. And I was too far into my disease to reverse it on my own. I was pitching hay to the cows one morning and I lost consciousness, falling into the hay. When I began to regain consciousness, I was in this space between waking and sleeping. I was in a dreamlike altered state, barely aware of myself. And this is when I first heard the voice. She was the voice of compassion, mercy, and love, unlike anything I'd ever heard. She had a presence unlike anything I'd ever felt. In that moment, I was resting at peace. I was held in the arms of the angel. She spoke to me in her warm, loving, and compassionate voice. She wanted me to remember. She wanted me to remember why I'd come here. I had a mission. I had a purpose. I had forgotten who I was and why I was born into this earthly physical experience. I just wanted to go home to a place where I could feel love again. It was cold here. I didn't want to be here. The angel told me I'd been given a gift. She told me I had the voice of the angels and my voice would heal many. She wanted me to know that I had a mission. I had a purpose. As I regained consciousness, I lay on the hay reflecting on what was said, what had just happened. And I figured I must have been hallucinating because although I loved to sing, my voice was really quite unremarkable. I was also deathly afraid of singing in public. I sang in the choir and the swing choir in my school, but I was far too shy to ever sing a solo. So I dismissed the visitation as a hallucination, and I pulled myself together the best I could. 
It was a week or two later I had my second visitation. This time I was lying on the sofa in our living room. My mom was in the same room reading a magazine, and I could feel my life force slipping from my body. I was afraid because I could no longer get up. I couldn't lift my head from the pillow. And there was my mom reading her magazine, oblivious to my predicament. I wanted to call out to her. I wanted to ask for help, but I couldn't speak. I begged the powers that be to just give me enough strength to ask for help. And in that moment, I found a very weak voice. I called out, Mom, I need help. I can't lift my head. At that moment, I began to fade again. And I heard my mom's voice saying, why don't you just eat something then? And she went back to reading her magazine as I went back to dying. At that moment, I knew nobody was going to save me. So I surrendered. I let go. I floated out of my body into a space of love and oneness. I just hovered there in that space. I remembered how it felt to be in the arms of the angel. It was as if I was just being held there in that space of love. I wasn't afraid anymore. I could have spent all of eternity floating in this oneness. There was no pain here. Just love. The angel was right there and spoke to me once more. She told me that I was at the crossroads between life and death, and I had a choice to make. I could live or I could die. The choice was mine. She told me that she would help me either way. The answer to that question was immediate. It came from a place deep within me. I didn't even have to think about it. I want to live. I said, I want to live. There was a power within me that called out for life, but it took standing at death's doorway to find it. Suddenly, I found myself back in my body, and there was a surge of energy that came into me. It was as if the angel came right into my body and lifted me right up off that sofa. I was in a hypnotic trance, unable to even think about what I was doing. I was not in charge. I glided into the kitchen, and I began throwing ingredients into the blender. I blended raw milk, orange juice, banana, wheat germ, raw egg, and honey. And I put the straw in the mixture, and I heard the voice again telling me, small sips, just keep taking small sips. This far into my disease, my appetite was completely gone. There was no desire to eat. But I knew this mixture would give me my life back. I drank this mixture for days until I could begin eating again. And by this time, my anorexia was gone. I was on my way back to life. I didn't need the hospital, the feeding tubes, the hovering parents who stood over me trying to get me to eat. I wasn't your typical anorexic patient. My life was saved by an angel. The challenges weren't over for me. 
They were really just beginning. I didn't understand what I'd signed up for. My next challenge was bulimia. Although I no longer had anorexia, I still feared putting on too much weight. Yet now in my subconscious was a program that said you're starving to death. So I began binge eating to satiate the deep hunger that I felt, followed by purging to appease the fear of gaining weight. I finally entered therapy at the age of 19. This time my parents were there for me, getting me into therapy and paying for it. There were a series of events that happened that broke through some of their denial about what was going on. My therapist explained that I was the leak in the hose of a deeper family dysfunction. I was the one who expressed that dysfunction. I was that sensitive one who found it far too difficult to live in an emotionally repressed environment. By the time I was 21, I had overcome my eating disorder completely. I remember how I believed that once my eating disorder was gone, I would be happy in my life. But once the eating disorder was gone, I had to really face my life. My eating disorder was the addiction that kept me from dealing with my pain. My core wounds ran deep. I still felt I was inadequate, unlovable, unwanted, and uncared for. I attracted a series of men who came to hold up a mirror showing me what I believed about myself. They triggered my belief that I was inadequate, unlovable, unwanted, and uncared for. I would leave one empty relationship only to find another. The abuse I experienced began as physical and then it morphed into psychological. I married a man who had a cocaine addiction that he was using to self-medicate a bipolar disorder. And when I married him, I wasn't really aware of either situation. I finally left him when I was five months pregnant with my son. He had a manic episode that was so destructive that I couldn't stay. On my 30th birthday, I stood in the welfare line crying my eyes out. When the social worker called me in, I couldn't stop crying. I told her it was my birthday. I was five months pregnant. My husband had taken me for everything I had. He'd cleaned out every penny from my savings account. He'd stolen my credit cards and maxed them all out. The rent check had bounced and I was already halfway into the last month's rent I paid on the house. Meanwhile, my husband was in a psychological hospital being taken care of. He'd received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. He'd lost his job and health insurance was expiring, and I had no idea what I was going to do. The social worker was wonderful. She told me they have this system in place for people like me. She assured me that it was okay for me to be there at the welfare office asking for help. Asking for help had never been easy for me. Just standing there at the welfare line on my 30th birthday, I felt like a loser. I didn't want a handout, but I had no choice. I left with medical coverage, food stamps, and an award for a small amount of money. I left my marriage, I moved back to the small town where I had a support network, and I started over. 
Several years later, I met a man who I believed to be the love of my life, a musician who helped me to record my first CD, and I believed my life was finally settling into a place where I could feel normal and stable. But in spite of the outer appearances, my inner turmoil was becoming stronger. I would try and turn to the man in my life, but he would have nothing to do with supporting me emotionally. Here I was, again, in an emotionally cold environment without anyone I could talk to about what I was going through. I remember feeling like I just wanted someone to care about me. I wanted to matter. I wanted to be important to someone. I was so tired of the cold. My partner was constantly ignoring me, giving me the silent treatment and checking out other women. I was having nightmares, and I was getting physically ill. He had no concern for me or my illness. I would return from my doctor's appointments, and he wouldn't ask me about how it went. In fact, he acted as if he'd forgotten I'd even had an appointment. I felt completely alone. By the time my son was eight years old, his father was now stabilized, working, and on medication, and he wanted me to send my son to Alaska, where he was living, for the summer. Because I was so sick, weak, and emotionally depleted, I took him up on his offer. And when the school year came around, my ex-husband asked me if my son could stay through the next school year. I was still in really bad shape, and so I agreed. I finally left my partner, who immediately moved on to another relationship, and I had a complete breakdown. I was unable to eat or sleep. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and I was put on antidepressants. Six months after my breakup, when I wasn't getting better, I went to a psychologist on the advice of a friend. She did a complete psychological profile on me, and I fully expected to be diagnosed with some kind of mental illness or disorder. Instead, she told me my ex-partner was a narcissist. I didn't know what a narcissist was, but she suggested I research it. This was the year, 1999, and there wasn't as much information available on the topic at this time. But I learned everything I could about narcissistic personality disorder, and I began to put together a picture. I began to tie narcissism to the cold, emotionally vacant environment I was raised in and that I'd also spent the last three years in. Although I slowly began to recover from the painful dynamic of narcissistic abuse, I had not realized how deeply I was repressing my own emotional pain. I was still sitting on my core wounds of feeling inadequate, invisible, unlovable, uncared for, and unwanted. I was still attracting dynamics that mirrored my core wounds back to me. With all the spiritual and psychological work I had done on myself, I still had not healed my core wounds. By this time, I'd written several books on the topic of narcissistic abuse, and I had a thriving practice offering counseling and hypnotherapy to other victims of narcissistic abuse. I had a successful radio show where I interviewed people on related topics, and eventually I began delivering my own message. At this stage in my life, I was speaking, writing, counseling, and singing. I was using my voice. 
I had forgotten the angel from so long ago, the one who told me about my mission and purpose to heal others through my voice. Although I believed she was talking about my singing voice, I realized it was also about my ability to speak about topics that were really bringing people back from the dead. It was about waking people up emotionally. It was about helping people to find their way through the darkness. My last long-term relationship ended in the year 2011, and I was thrown into my third dark night of the soul. My first was the eating disorder and near-death experience. The second was when my relationship ended with a narcissist, and my third when my relationship ended with another narcissistic man. I didn't see this coming. I didn't realize he was narcissistic. He was very different from the other one. He did seem to care. He did sit with me and talk for hours about emotional topics. It wasn't cold like the first one. Still, something wasn't right. He may not have been the typical narcissist, but the ending of that relationship was shattering. He disappeared from my life when I was battling Lyme disease. We'd been living together for six years, and he simply disappeared from my life without a word. It was his brother who told me he ran off with another woman. And my mind interpreted this abandonment as being the result of not only my illness, but my complete worthlessness. This time, all the core wounds and emotions I'd been trying to push back down came up to be healed. I was in deep pain. I didn't want to live with this pain. Where was my angel now? I didn't feel her. I didn't hear her. I was completely alone. My core wounds that told me I was inadequate, unloved, uncared for, and unwanted were triggered in a big way. The structures I'd built my life on were crumbling. I had a big revelation during this time that helped me immensely in my ability to work with those who were in pain. In my earlier days as a counselor, I measured my success by my ability to help others to get out of pain. I came to realize it wasn't my job to help others to get out of pain. It was my work to help others to walk through their pain, just as I was learning how to walk through my own. Our emotional pain is not some big, ugly demon that needs to be amputated from our lives. Our pain shows us where we need to heal. When we find ourselves in a place where we just don't want to live anymore, we might become suicidal or have what is called suicidal ideation. Most people come to this doorway as a result of unbearable emotional pain. Suicide may seem like the only way out of pain. What I came to realize in my own journey, my own dark night of the soul, is that the only way out is through. We may find ourselves standing at the entrance to a very dark tunnel. We look back behind us and realize we can't go back. That would be like a caterpillar trying to crawl back into the skin that it has shed. It would not be possible. We can stand still paralyzed in fear, knowing we can't go back, yet terrified to go forward into that dark tunnel. 
When we dig our feet in and refuse to move, we become stagnant. We begin to rot away in this state of limbo. When we find the courage to walk into that tunnel and find our way through the darkness, we eventually emerge into the light at the other side. We go through a rebirth. We confront our own pain, fear, and darkness. And in that willingness to confront what lies within us, we stop resisting the pain and we surrender to it. Now, that may seem frightening to you, the idea of surrendering to your pain. But surrender means to allow it to be there rather than continue to try and medicate it or push it back into the shadows. When you can allow your pain to be there, it comes up and is released in layers, much like peeling the skin of an onion one layer at a time. The more layers are peeled away, the lighter you become. What I found on my journey is that I was no longer carrying this heavy, dense burden around with me. I was no longer afraid of my pain. I didn't like it. I didn't like the way it felt to be in pain, but I didn't resist it either, and I allowed those layers to be peeled away. I began to feel a light-heartedness. I suffered an immense amount of emotional pain in my relationships, and I could have closed my heart. I could have become hardened and bitter. I could have walled myself off from others as a way of protecting myself from further pain. But I didn't do any of this. The more pain I felt, the more my heart cracked open until it finally broke open to reveal a love that reminds me of what it felt like to be wrapped in the arms of the angel. I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to allow my heartbreak to break me. I brought love to my wounds and allowed my suffering to open me to a higher love. Rumi says, the wound is where the light enters you. We all need to learn how to allow the light to come into our wounds and heal us. It's been over 40 years since my near-death experience, since the time I was told of my mission, to be a voice of the angel. I now step out onto that stage of life knowing it is not me who sings. It's not me who speaks. It's not me who counsels others. It's the angel, the divine presence who speaks and sings through me. I had to get myself out of the way in order to be a channel for divine love to move through me. When I was in my early 20s, emerging from my Christian roots, struggling with my guilt and shame, I spoke to Jesus. I just decided to have a conversation with him one day. I asked him for his help in understanding a few things. I asked him what he really wanted me to know what he really came here to teach us. I heard his voice speaking from within me, and he said, I am the truth, the life, and the way. The I am is the presence within, the God within. People believe they needed to go through me, the man, to get to God, but that was not what I was teaching. 
What I was teaching is that God dwells within the heart of man, and if man can reach his own heart, he will know the way. This message brings a new meaning to follow your heart. When we truly learn to follow our heart, we're following the divine within. But we can't truly follow our heart when we've closed our heart for fear of feeling our pain. Feeling our pain is the way to higher love. Feeling our pain is like bleeding the poison out of our heart so we can feel the love that is there. There were times in my life where I wished I had made the other choice, when standing at the crossroads between life and death. But now, now I understand why I came to this life, and I'm forever grateful for the angel who saved me and gave me a second chance. We all have that angel guiding us through the darkness. We're never really alone. Sometimes we feel alone. There are times we can't hear that voice guiding us from within, but we are never alone. If you find yourself at the crossroads between life and death, and you have a choice to make, I urge you to choose life. There's a reason you're here. Your life matters. You matter. Bleed out that pain and find your heart. Find the love that's waiting for you. It isn't out there in the world to be found in someone else. It's here within you. And it has been all along. And once you find that love within you, you will see it mirrored back to you in the eyes of the other. As I step upon that stage to sing my songs from the heart, from the soul, from the deepest part of me, I know that they carry the codes that crack open the wounded heart so that the light may enter. When I share these teachings and these podcasts, I know they carry the codes of healing for those who seek this healing. But why did I have to go through so much pain and so many obstacles to get here? I realize it's because I had to know pain on every level. I had to know the cold, lonely, dark void of the narcissistic reality. I had to know sickness. I had to know death. I had to know grief and loss. I had to know what love was not. In order to truly know love and to truly open my heart to receive the highest vibration of love, I needed to know what love was not. I realized that to be the voice of the angel is really to be my most true self. It's to allow the divine within me to speak out, to sing out, and to love and to live with passion. We all have this angel within us. We are all beautiful divine beings having a human experience Our human experience is truly about awakening to who we really are, and as we do, we help to facilitate the awakening of humanity. I want to thank you for listening today, and I hope that you have found value in my story and that it can give you strength and courage to walk through your own darkness. Remember, you're not alone, 
And if you need help, I'm here. You can find me and find out more about my work at NarcissismFree.com and PathBackToSelf.com. Blessings for a beautiful day. And we'll see you in the next podcast.